You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Really good to see everybody here today and uh, be able to share together in those four things that Ned was talking about during the meditation, uh, the four essential operations of the church as we gather together. We do a lot of other things too, and I think to God's glory, but uh, we try to adhere to those things that he has established as he has established them. Please turn to Job chapter 42. More welcome words were never heard, I'm sure. No, I'm kidding. Um, Our closing song today is, uh, let's see, what is it? It's, um, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. And I told Elvin I was sure that he selected that on purpose today. He said he didn't even know we're going to be done with Job today. But here it is. We're going to be done with Job today. So uh, this is it. Uh, If you missed everything else, pay attention today, I guess. I don't know. All right, Job chapter 42. So do we have any movie buffs? Movie buzz, you guys, all right. How about really, really old movies? Know a lot about really, really old movies. Okay, let's have a little quiz here. Anyone know which film won the very first Academy Award for Best Picture? What's that? Nope. Nope. It, it was filmed in, what's that? I'll give you a hint. It, it, three, three clues. It was filmed in 1927. It was a silent film, and it featured airplanes in World War I. The very first Oscar for Best Picture was awarded in 1929 to Wings, starring Clara Bow, Charles Rogers, and Richard Allerin. And you're going, who? Probably some of you have heard of Clara Bow. The rest of those may be a little obscure. Wings is a war movie about two American aviators and their adventures and loss in World War I. One of the reasons that it won the very first Best Picture Award is that it had the most realistic air combat sequences ever seen in a film at that time. A man named William Wellman directed the movie, and he often stopped production of the film for a few days at a time. Once he stopped production for 18 days in a row. Yeah, this frustrated the producers, as you might guess, who asked Wellman why he kept stopping. His answer, all we have is blue sky. Wellman explained, motion on the screen is a relative thing. A horse runs on the ground or leaps over fences or streams. We know the horse is going rapidly because of his relation to the immobile ground. There's a frame of reference there. Planes flying in a blue sky, in black and white, right, didn't appear to be moving. So whenever it was possible, Wellman attempted to capture footage in the air in contrast to clouds in the background, above or in front of cloud banks, to generate a sense of velocity and danger. Clouds enabled Wellman to show the planes darting at each other, disappearing into the clouds, and giving the audience the sense of the disabled planes plummeting to the ground. Wellman said the conflict in the air is not visible with only blue sky. Clouds bring perspective. You need clouds. 
Now listen to those last two statements again. Clouds bring perspective. You need clouds. Okay? That may be literally true of cinematography, but I think it applies figuratively to the book of Job and to our lives as well. There have been a lot of clouds so far in the book of Job, both figurative and literal. In Job's first affliction by Satan, he lost his herds, his servants, and his children. Those are figurative black clouds in Job's life. Then Satan afflicts Job's body, causing him all sorts of misery. More clouds. Job's wife blames Job, telling him to curse God and die. More clouds. Job's friends, supposedly there to comfort him, start rebuking Job, saying that there must be some terrible sin in his life that God is, is punishing him for, that he's been treated like this. You know, when your friends treat you like that, more clouds. Then Elihu speaks, telling Job that God is not punishing him for sin, but that Job has sinned in the attitude that he has displayed toward God in his affliction. More clouds. As, as Elihu finishes speaking, a storm and a whirlwind begin to move in, bringing literal clouds and also heralding the beginning of God speaking to Job, where God rebukes him for his faulty perspective about God and about himself. Lots and lots and lots of clouds in the book of Job, aren't there? Okay? And then as chapter 42 begins, we reach the turning point in the book of Job. Perhaps the literal storm and whirlwind begin to dissipate, and maybe the sun began to shine. Now, that's speculation on my part. I don't know that that happened, uh, and you know, the, the slide there is supposed to depict that somewhat. But even if they didn't, the figurative clouds in Job's life began to dissipate, and the light starts to shine. Job reaches a new level of awareness and understanding of God. He sees himself more clearly. And his perspective on his relationship with God improves. All because God allowed Job's life to be filled with these clouds. Our message today is called, Clouds Bring Perspective. And we'll begin in Job chapter 42, verse 1. I really talk very little about the clouds. Talk a lot about the perspective, okay? And talk a lot about the perspective. Start in verse 1 of chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak, I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract. And I repent in dust and ashes. And throughout the cycle of speeches between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job insisted and kept insisting that God was unfair and unjust. Job wanted and even demanded a hearing with God in which God would explain himself to Job. Now we might say, well, hard times can make you do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. And that might even be true. But I think that hard times can also bring to light things that we have inside us that wouldn't come to light any other way. See what the effect is that those clouds had on Job, right? They revealed something in him that wasn't coming out in his prosperity 
and in his life of ease. Job's afflictions have brought to light an underlying misunderstanding that he had about how life works. In his mind, those who honor God and who live godly lives should be rewarded, not punished. So Job wanted God to answer for his unjust treatment of Job. And when God finally does answer Job, and this, you know, the last uh, uh, three messages in uh, summary, he takes Job on a virtual tour of the physical universe and his, its properties, asking Job if he could explain everything that God had created. And of course, Job couldn't. Then God mentioned several of the animals in the world to Job, asking Job if he could direct them in their ways, the ways they should go, if he could care for them and or feed them. And of course, Job couldn't. And at that point, and this was week before last, when Job first replied to God, he did answer, but only to say that he wasn't able to answer God's questions. And so he wouldn't say anymore. He said, I'll put my hand over my mouth and I'll just shut up now. That's not the same as understanding the place that God wanted him to be. Okay? That was at the beginning of chapter 40. Job had not reached the point of understanding to which God was leading him. So God told Job then, in last week's message, to look at two of God's mighty creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. Job could not subdue these creatures. He had no control over them. Yet God was in full control over them in addition to being their creator, which Job also was not qualified to be. Finally then, now here we are in Job chapter 42. We've gotten to the point God wanted to get us to, or God wanted to get Job to. Job recognizes his error. His second response to God begins with, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In these statements, Job acknowledges that he was wrong to question God, that he was wrong to expect God to give Job an account to Job of his actions. Job recognized God's transcendence over the universe, over all created things, and over Job himself, which is probably the most critical one. Later, Moses would express this idea in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, by saying about God, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That's not the song Job's been singing, is it? But now he gets it. He's come to that point. Job finally got to the point of understanding to which God was leading him. And in verses 3 and 4, if any of that sounded a little bit familiar and a little bit odd that Job was using those words, Job is quoting two of the things that God said to him at the beginning of the two, you might say, the two speeches that God made to Job. One starting in chapter 38, one uh, there in uh, verse 40, or in chapter 40. The first thing that Job quotes God as saying is, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Those were God's opening words to Job. <laughs> Who do you think you are, anyway? Um, when God said that in Job 38, verse 2, Job didn't believe that it applied to him. Me? Me? Hiding counsel without knowledge? That can't be me. His belief was that he knew what he was talking about, and that for all the power, all his power and wisdom, somehow God must be wrong. Interesting place to come, but that was the conclusion Job had drawn. After God finished talking to Job, Job finally realized just how much he didn't know. And he recognized that he had been speaking about things that he did not fully know or understand. I think he still doesn't understand them. 
But the difference is, now he knows that he doesn't understand them. And that's a huge leap forward for Job. Job quoted God's words to, to show that he recognized that they did apply to him. The second quote that, God, that Job makes of God's words, he says, I will ask you and you instruct me. God said that back in chapter 40, verse 7. Okay, Job, you tell me how it is. Like that's going to happen, right? At that time, God was being ironic, preparing Job to realize that it wasn't his place to instruct God. Where do you get off, Job, telling me what to do, right? Job now turned that statement around as it should be. Job will now ask God and receive his instruction from God. He's ready to listen, whereas before he was ready to talk. When listening is what he should have been doing. We get the idea that God's appearance in chapters 38 through 42 is something Job had never experienced before. And Job was a good guy. Remember, righteous man, blameless in all his ways. God said that twice back in the opening chapters about Job. But I don't think he'd had this kind of encounter before. This is something new. And Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Job was aware. There's a God. He served him. He tried to do his right. He says, but now my eye sees you. Job had presumed much in stating his case that he deserved better than what God was giving him. And now he admits that he was presumptuous. And that brings us to the final point of change that we see in Job. Job's words here at the beginning of chapter 42 and in verse 6 demonstrate his true humility. Job now sees himself as God sees him, at least far more than he had before. Job now recognizes God for who he really is, the almighty creator, sustainer of the universe and all that is in it, and the sovereign and transcendent God who is not required to explain himself to anyone. Job's last recorded words are, this is the last thing we hear from Job, Ever. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And that's what it says in my translation, New American Standard Version. So, what did Job retract exactly? Well, I think he retracted his characterization of God as unfair. Those accusations, he said, I withdraw those. Okay? He retracted his demand for an explanation from God. I wasn't right in having that kind of Demand. I wasn't right in expecting that of God. Who am I to make that demand? Other translations say that Job despised himself, which I think is another way of saying that he now properly exalted God where he hadn't before. You might say he humbled himself. Job's perspective had been altered, and that was a good thing because he needed it. He really needed it. Now, there's something else about Job's repentance and change of perspective that I hope you've picked up on, okay? But we're going to talk about that at the end of the message. So think about that. Job's repentance and his change of perspective. There's another aspect here that we still need to consider, and we're going to talk about that at the end of the message. Go on to verse 7. Verses 7 through 9. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourself, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has." So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. Now, we're not told what Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar were doing while God was speaking to Job. They may have been pleased that God himself finally showed up, put Job in his place. Boy, he's going to get it now. God's giving it to him. Look at him go. Now, if so, that pleasure was short-lived, <laughs> as God also puts these three friends of Job in their place. And it says here that God was angry with these men. Now, never says he was angry with Job. It says he was angry with these three men. In fact, it says he was so angry that he said to Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends. Now, does that sound like maybe God was just mildly perturbed with them just a little bit? You know, just kind of slightly peeved. Okay, don't do that. I don't like what you're doing right now. No, this is not the words for that, okay? No. God's wrath was kindled against them, and that's some serious anger. And for what? What's, what's their transgression? Well, because they had not spoke twice. God says this. Because they had not spoken of God what was right as Job had. And that's confusing. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but that's confusing to me at this point. Because while we know that there were things that the three friends got wrong, did Job get everything right? No, no, he didn't. Or God wouldn't have spent any time trying to change his perspective. And God spent a lot of time, two rounds of it. Trying to, okay, Job, you're still not getting it. Let me talk about Behemoth and Leviathan. Let's see if you get it then. And so then he did. Job didn't get everything right either. So we're left with the question of what God means that Job spoke what was right of God and the three friends didn't. Well, what the three friends got wrong was their consistent and continued assertion that Job's suffering was God's punishment on him for being a dirty, rotten sinner. That's who you are, Job. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. That's why God's doing this to you. You better repent right now because we don't know what it is. Now, see, that's the problem. Job's suffering had nothing to do with sin had everything to do with God's sovereignty and transcendence. Job got part of that right in saying that it was not because of sin that he was suffering, so there must be some other explanation. That was correct. And the three friends said, no, Job, you're all wrong about that. That's where Job spoke correctly about God, and the three friends did not. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were sure that Job deserved his suffering but here's the problem. They didn't have any evidence of sin in Job's life that validated their viewpoint. They're saying, well, we can't see it, but we know you must be a dirty, rotten sinner because otherwise God wouldn't be treating you like this. Got to be the answer. No, it wasn't the answer. And that made God very angry. And it ought to make us think about our own views about God and about life and about other people, and how all those things fit together. Okay? We don't want to be in the place of Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. But, rather than acting on his anger, and punishing Job's three friends, as God says, according to their folly, you really don't want that, God gave them an opportunity to be forgiven. Now that forgiveness depended on two things. 
This wasn't just automatic. Well, okay, I guess I'll let you guys slide this time, but don't do it again. That is not what God said. God gave them some instructions here. Their forgiveness depended on two things, sacrifice and intercession. I don't know if the seven bulls and seven rams were the total number of animals for all three men, or if they were supposed to take that many each. Doesn't really matter. Either way, there was going to be an animal sacrifice on their behalf. Sacrifice was required. In addition, the three men were told to go to Job in order to offer up the sacrifice, and that Job would pray for them. Intercession, you see. Then and only then would God relent from giving the three men the punishment they deserved, according to God, and God's right, so they did deserve it. And that had to happen. If they'd said, we're not sacrificing any animals, and we're certainly not going to Job, I hate to think what would have happened to those three friends, but they did it, and God accepted Job's intercession. While Job's children were living, you might remember from back in the early chapters, Job acted as a patriarchal priest, offering sacrifices for them and interceding with God for them in case they had sinned in some way. Job's done this before. This isn't new. Now, this may be new, Job is acting as a priest for his three friends. I think that certainly altered the dynamic in the way they related to Job in the future. Up until now, they had considered themselves Job's equals at the very least, and during his affliction, they seem to have seen themselves as superior to Job. Now, now Job has become the one standing between them and God's punishment. And what a humbling thing that would be for those three friends, which apparently they needed as well. So Job prayed for his three friends in conjunction with their sacrifice, and God accepted Job and spared his friends. Because God's forgiveness is like that. When he makes an offer of forgiveness and he supplies the conditions for the, you know, he supplies the terms for how that forgiveness is going to be applied, how you can receive it, he's faithful to that. He said, you've got to make the sacrifice and my servant Job, which he called him my servant twice. Job, Job is starting to see not just the light here of his own lack of understanding before. He's starting to see the light of those guys really were wrong all along. I never was that crossways with God. I had it wrong because I didn't see it correctly, but God really did recognize my righteousness. And I didn't ever have to worry about that. And that's a good thing for Job. But he said, told the three friends, you go make that sacrifice and my servant Job prays for you and I'll forgive you. And they went and they made the sacrifices. And Job prayed for them. And God didn't say, well, no, you didn't do it quite right. Or, no, those were substandard animals. Job's prayer wasn't long enough. He didn't say any of those things. He just said, okay. I said it. This is how you do it. You did it. I forgive you. But he said he did it because he accepted Job. And Job was that intercessor. You see the parallels, I'm sure. The parallels are so striking between Job and Christ. Not, not really the focus of this, not where we're headed with this, but the parallels are striking. The, the, the intercession and the sacrifice, both of which we find in Jesus and which we commemorate here around this table every week. And, and thank you again, Ned, for that community meditation. Yeah, the parallels are striking. Let's move on to verse 10. 
And this is the part that I think so many people look at and say, oh, this is the good part of Job, right? We'll talk about that. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Not what he currently had, what he had from before, right? Okay. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first of the daughters, that is, Jemima, and the second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. The end, right? Okay, so I know you know this. You know what you get when you play a country song backwards? Yeah. You get your wife back, you get your job back, you get your house back, you get your dog back, and your truck starts running again. Yeah, because, you know, all those country songs, they all talk about how those things go the other way, right? Okay. Well, that's a joke, but what God did for Job is no joke. First, God restored Job's wealth double what it had been before. Now, that, it's not clear whether Job had to start from scratch taking the money and gold that his friends and family gave him and using it to buy breeding stock and building up his herds all over again? Very possibly so. But one way or another, Job ended up with twice the number of animals he had previously. And then God gave Job ten children. And we might say, well, it may double his children because he had ten and now he has ten. He'd need twenty to have double what he had before. But you think about it. Sheep and oxen and donkeys, they die and go away and that's it. Children, people die, but they don't cease to exist. They're beyond our reach, those of us who are still living, but they're still very much in existence. Job had now 20 children. It's just that only 10 of them were still living at this point. Okay, Double the children. This speaks of the passage of time, maybe another 10 or 20 years or more, at least we hope so for Job's wife's sake, that this wasn't all, you know, you know, two batches of quintuplets or something. Yeah, that'd be bad. And that might lend support to the idea that Job had to build up his animal herds over time. Three things stand out about Job's second set of 10 children. One of them is not mentioned in the text, Okay. And that is, the one that's not mentioned, it would seem that Job's relationship with his wife, which had been strained perhaps almost to the ranking point, was mended now, since they go on to have these ten children together, unless there's some way that Job had a second wife. We have no reason to believe that he did. As far as we know, Job's wife at the beginning is Job's wife at the end. Okay. The second thing that stands out about these children is that the three girls are named, but the seven boys are not. Special emphasis is placed on the girls here, okay? Uh, Their names, Jemima means dove. Keziah means cassia, very similar in in, uh, form there. It's a uh, 
something used in, in fragrances uh, to produce perfumes, uh, possibly a connection with the word cinnamon also, but we're not sure. And uh, Karen Hapug probably means, this is weird, I know, horn of antimony. You gonna name your girls that? Anybody? Okay, uh, no, don't, don't do that. Karen's okay, but I don't know about Karen Hapuk. Anyway, uh, the antimony referred to the black powder that they would use to highlight the eye. Makeup, okay, makeup's not a new thing. Makeup's a very, very old thing, in fact, okay? These three women were the fairest or most beautiful women in all the land. And so that stands out. And the third thing that stands out about them, and again, it's the girls emphasized here, they received an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, as far as we understand the culture of that time, and later specified under the Mosaic law, women usually did not receive an inheritance unless they had no brothers. The fact that their inheritance is mentioned here indicates that it is out of the ordinary. Job's children doubled by God. Okay, And then God doubled Job's life, at least in a way of thinking. Verse 16 says that Job lived 140 years after this. That's what it says in my translation. That seems plain enough, but apparently... In the Hebrew, it's, there are enough questions and some other things that we find that uh, some, some debate whether that was his entire lifetime or the number of years he lived after God restored him, as mine seems to indicate. Uh, the Septuagint, the, the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was made in that 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew, the Septuagint says that Job was 70 when his afflictions began and that he lived 170 years after that, which would make him 240 when he died, certainly much, much older than Abraham or the other patriarchs of that time. Well, I shouldn't say much, much, but I mean a good 25, 30 years or better older. So Abraham only lived 175. Some of the others lived, you know, just in that neighborhood around 200, but um, uh, this would have been much longer than them. Whatever the case, I think there can be no question that Job lived longer after God restored him than he had lived before his affliction. And think about Job's current situation. For Job, who had been facing death, his illness so painful and, and his, he, he just so, uh, I think, wasting away of his body and the, don't, don't get me started on the worms again, okay? The whole thing that he had to deal with he was looking at death as a welcome thing. As far as he was concerned, he, for much of this account, he was already there. And for Job, it was as though he had an entire lifetime given to him to live again. And while the text doesn't explicitly say that God healed Job from his illness, it seemed pretty clear to me that Job's entire life was restored, not just part of it. This is not a, a half measure. It's not a sort of a kind of thing that God did. It's everything. And for him to live that long and not be a curse, uh, yeah, he, he pretty well had to be over his illness, right? Okay. So what do we take away here? Well, it took a while. But Job finally understood what God wanted him to understand. The clouds of adversity and affliction are never convenient for us. I can't think that they're even pleasurable on any level. But sometimes they are necessary to give us perspective. Job might never have understood God properly. 
if it had not been for his suffering. We should look for ways to grow closer to God and to know him better at all times, but also consider the possibility that perhaps God sometimes allows hardship into our lives as a wake-up call, that there's something about how we view God or how we view ourselves or how we view our relationship with him that needs to be tuned up. And Job needed that, and he wasn't getting there when he was prosperous and when life was easy. Now, earlier I said that there was something else about Job's change and repentance that I hope you perceived. And I'd ask for ideas, but this is one of those things like, oh, what does John want to hear? Yeah, you know, it could be anything, right? So, you know, if you have ideas, that's fine. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily ask you to, to share them. But here's, here's what I think that we need to observe here. Most of us are familiar enough with the account of Job that we knew that when we started the book way back when, we knew God was going to restore his fortunes, right? Double the flocks, double the children, double the life, and Job lived happily ever after. We knew that, right? So what? Well, here's so what. At the beginning of chapter 42... When Job was expressing his new understanding of God and of himself, and Job was repenting of his rash words and presumptions, Job did not know that God was going to restore anything to him. He didn't know that. He's still, okay. At that point, Job was still covered with sores. He's still poor. He's still childless. Job had no idea that any of that was going to change. And so the point I'm making is that his assessment, his acknowledgement, I was wrong. I didn't understand you, God. I wasn't looking at you in the right way. I wasn't correct in, in challenging you the way that I did and demanding an explanation for you. None of that was right. None of that that Job said was dependent on, oh, yeah, God restored me. I guess I better make nice with him. None of it depended on that. Okay? If the book of Job had ended with chapter 42, verse 9, when Job interceded on behalf of his friends, its value to us would be exactly the same. If God... Well, let me say that again in a different way. Okay? God could have left Job in his suffering and poverty, probably soon to die, and that would have been okay. Neither Job, nor you, nor I have the right to expect or demand of God that he reward us here and now for anything. God makes promises, and we have every right to expect him to fulfill his promises, but those promises don't include a lack of suffering or affliction in this life. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted unto you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for Christ's sake. Paul's words to Christians. James 5.11 tells us the meaning of God restoring Job's wealth, children, and life. James 5.11, the New Testament reference here back to Job. He says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. The, the Lord's compassion and mercy motivated him to restore Job's fortunes. 
God was not obligated to do so, but by choice, as an expression of love and mercy for Job, God restored Job's life completely, giving him even more than he had before. Don't get tied into, oh, well, Job suffered, and he even uh, railed against God, and he was wrong about some stuff, but God brought it all around at the end, and God restored him double what he had before, so when I undergo affliction, or when you undergo affliction, God's going to do that for us too. Whatever we've lost, he's going to get us back, you know, double as much. Not in this life necessarily. I'll say that. No, Jesus said, if anyone has given up houses or lands or fathers or mothers or brothers or sisters... He will get those back many times, but I don't think he meant in this life. Not the way that we think sometimes, okay? Don't get tied to that. And I would say that while God does not promise physical restoration to us under any circumstances, he just doesn't. Physically is not, is not his primary focus. He may. We pray for healing, we pray for people to get well or, or, or to have an improvement in their situation somehow. And God can answer those prayers and do those things, but he's not, he doesn't promise that he will always do those things. But he does promise spiritual restoration to all who will accept his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. And God is not obligated to do that. But by choice as an expression of love, mercy, and grace for us, for human beings in general, God sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross and to take away our sin. He gives us this opportunity for salvation. We read the verses, the call to worship here this morning. He gives us this opportunity for salvation through faith in Christ as a gift. We could never earn it in any way. Like Job when we realize that we haven't been living God's way, we need to repent. We need to turn away from sin. God wants us to confess our faith in Christ to others. And then we may be and need to be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in us. In Christ, God will not always give you what you want, but he will always give you what you need. Do you recognize your need for salvation through Jesus Christ today? If so, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song. <laughs>